Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you're listening to this for the first time, go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you're listening on podcast. And if you've already been listening, leave us a rating or a review or both. It really does help us out. I'm Matt Robeson. And last year, I wrote an article for Alternet and Raw Story arguing that Republicans under Donald Trump were flat out winning the battle for the judiciary, what I called the shadow war in the fight for control of America's government. The campaigns for the presidency and Congress get most of the attention. And when we think of the federal courts, we tend to think of a few high profile Supreme Court or confirmation battles. But consider that underneath the Supreme Court, there are 13 courts of appeals and below them 94 district courts Most of the time, it's those lower courts that have the final word on questions of federal law. Every year, there are about 300,000 civil case filings and 90,000 criminal case filings in district courts. The Supreme Court only hears a little over 100 cases on average. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor once said that these lower courts, the appellate courts, are where policy is made. And now, consider that Donald Trump substantially shifted the calculus of those courts. By the time he left office, he had appointed about one quarter of the total judges. And at the ultra-important appellate level, Trump had shifted Republican-appointed judges from holding 40% of the seats to an outright majority at 54%. Even for Republicans who like the sound of that last sentence, consider that comprehensive analyses have shown Trump judges to be far more partisan far more activist and far more socially conservative than those from any other president, with a surprising number having been found by the nonpartisan panel of lawyers who review nominees to be unqualified or underqualified. Our guest today calls this a conservative fortress in the federal judiciary. He's also devised a smart constitutional method for scaling that fortress. It's not court packing or term limits or probably anything you've heard before. Chris Brigman is the Murray and Kathleen Bring Professor of Law at the NYU School of Law, the author of numerous articles in law reviews and other scholarly publications, not to mention popular publications. He's here to tell us all about it. Welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you. It's a totally fascinating topic. I'm really looking forward to jumping into it. But speaking of you being an author of numerous articles, I want to do today's episode kind of appetizer main course style. Look, we're all missing eating in restaurants. So before we get into that big idea about the federal courts, uh, the federal courts, let's talk for just a couple of minutes about a really clever article that you wrote last week for a website called the Editorial Board. It's also on Alternet for people who want to check it out. It's about housing. You write, federal housing policy is a mess. Housing is expensive because we haven't built enough of it. And the basic problem is NIMBYism. Now, okay, for people who haven't heard the term NIMBY, what's a NIMBY and why is it kind of wrecking our housing policy? So NIMBY is an acronym that stands for not in my backyard. And it is a, it's a force in housing policy. People on the local level who oppose new housing projects, especially housing projects that aren't based around single family low density, but are higher density, larger buildings, typically near public transport. Um, Opposition to these projects is a part of, it's not the entire story, but it's a part of the reason why we, especially in our most affluent and vibrant urban areas, have failed to keep up with housing demand. We, We have a growing 
gap between demand and supply. This has driven the cost of housing in cities like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington, DC, Boston. Um, this has, San Diego, this has driven the, the cost of housing uh, up enormously. So that th this is a problem. It's a problem of local politics, which we typically think is good. Um, and it's, it's a problem that uh, increasingly, I think, is uh, dogging our, our attempts to house people in a, in a reasonable, affordable manner. Well, let me tell you, I've worked as a, as a staffer at the federal level in Congress, at the state level in a state legislature, and I've done a little bit of local politics. Local politics is the worst. It is, it is the toughest, the most kind of hand-to-hand, -hand, brutal dogfight politics there is. And it sounds like NIMBYism is sort of bedeviling our local politics. Is, let me let me ask a little bit about the argument you present. You, you, I won't say it's it's quite a straw man, but you evaluate the main argument that people who oppose more housing construction, these NIMBY types, put right. forward. They basically say, "Well, it doesn't really help if you buy more housing. If you, you know if you put more of it on the market, you build it. It's just going to help the rich people." Anyway, is, is there anything to that, or is it? kind of a smokescreen. Yeah, so so there is something to it, at least rhetorically, um, but I, I don't think ultimately it's a good argument. So, so the argument basically is, and you see this in New York where I live all the time, there's a, there's a proposal to build housing, um, a, a big unit, a big building somewhere in, a, in typically in uh, an affluent neighborhood these days because there's an attempt in New York to have the affluent neighborhoods in part carry their burden of providing access to housing, right? We're not just building big buildings in less affluent neighborhoods. So there's a, for example, a big project now underway to rezone Soho and NoHo. So those are two very affluent neighborhoods in Manhattan. Um, and the argument against this that the NIMBYs mount is look, you're just gonna build a bunch of housing that's gonna be very expensive and this doesn't help housing affordability. This just, this just attracts a whole bunch of rich people who occupy these new buildings and the poor are displaced. In fact, they're, they're gentrified out of the neighborhood. So there's a couple of responses to that. One is that, yes, I understand that people are skeptical in part because, you know, we've been building some new housing, but housing costs continue to go up. But I would remind them that, you know, in New York City over the last two decades, we have built less than one new housing unit for every five new jobs in New York City. So it's not, we're not even close to keeping up. We have an enormous gap and it's growing. Um, so it's not surprising that prices have gone up a lot. The other thing is, you know, um, you, the laws of supply and demand, you know, are pretty stubborn things. And if you create a lot of supply, um, you might increase demand a bit, but unless you, increase unless you increase demand by more than you increase supply, prices are, all else equal are going to go down. And, and there's a bunch of empirical work that looks at new housing costs and the, the effect on, of new buildings on housing around the new buildings. And it, 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 it finds that, you know, that housing prices go down a bit when you build new uh, uh, units and they don't go up as fast thereafter. So the, 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 the empirical data is on the side of, you know, the, the normal expectations we, we probably would all have about supply and demand. But you know that you say local politics is very nasty. This is true. You get, you get NIMBY arguments that, you know, the, the academics who do these studies are in the pocket of the real estate industry, that everyone is a shill for big real estate. So that, that it tends to devolve into that fairly quickly. Well, it's, it's a really interesting article. It's a, it's a really interesting argument. It's something that 
we don't all think about a good deal. And look, I want to connect a dot here because a lot of our listeners on radio are going to be listening in New Hampshire, small city, right. um, small New England towns. I can tell you, I live in small New England. I'm a New York native. I live in small mm. New England towns. We have this issue when we think about local economic development in our downtowns, in small towns, in small cities throughout America, certainly throughout New England, you always run up against a force in local politics that says this is changing the character of our town. It's changing the uh, the economic mix. It's it's unfair to low-income people. This is right. not an issue that's just difficult for New York City. And by the way, it's not just about housing. I mean, your your expertise is in innovation, copyright law, new technologies. And look, we're, we're right on the cusp in the U.S. Senate of passing a massive infusion of funding for broadband. Well, right. what do you run into? You run into with every development project, you run into, well, why are you going to build anything near me? I was introduced to a new term in New Hampshire politics, bananas. I'd never heard this before. I'd heard of NIMBY. I'd never heard of bananas, which stands for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. And so this is, <laughs> this is an issue that I think all of us confront in our lives, whether we realize it or not. So I guess my question at the tail end of that long diatribe right. is you at the end of your article say, look, there are some policy, some government prescriptions that we can apply here just in the housing slice. But you know, from your broader expertise, do you think that this is an issue, this issue of let's not build anything that government needs to take a stronger hand in when, if we really want to have the economic development and kind of the social and urban development that we need to make progress in this country? Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons, government has to do more. So um, it, it is true, this is not only an urban phenomenon. So the, there's now this process, and it'll be interesting to see where this goes, of people leaving some larger cities for some smaller towns. And, you know, of course, teleworking is a big part of that. So we've been talking about teleworking for a long time, but it, it really came of age during the COVID pandemic. So places like where you live, where very desirable places to live from which you can telework, you know, they're going to need to build housing too. Um, and a lot of this housing to be affordable is going to be, have to be higher density. It, it can't be single family development on large lots. There's also environmental reasons to do this, right? So density is much more environmentally sound. And, you know, we, we face a whole host of changes that we're going to have to make housing policy, transportation policy, energy policy going forward to address climate change. So, you know, we have to do that now. We can't do that later. Um, finding a way to defeat NIMBYism is one of those things we're going to have to do. The last point I would make is, you know, this is really beginning, and this is something I say in the article, to become generational. So a lot of NIMBYism is driven by older people, boomers, who own their homes, they're, they're mostly single family homes, and who are opposed to the, to the construction of the larger, higher density projects that younger people can afford. Now, of course, younger people are starting their lives, you know, with one hand tied behind their back, they, they, they often have much higher student debt than older people did at that age. They often have much lower net worth because think of the economic dislocations they've lived through, the Great Recession and now COVID. These things have really hurt younger people badly. Um, one of the ways to give younger people a chance to do better in life um, is to lower their housing costs. And to do that, we're going to have to build. So this is all, I think, going to happen. The only question is, how long is it going to take and how painful is it going to be? Well, I'm so glad you brought up this issue of what's essentially a generational clash, a culture clash, a, an ideological clash between an 
older, more conservative, differently worldviewed, did I just make up a term right. there, cohort in American life and public policy, and a younger, more progressive generation looking to make change. That's really the, the clash that you profile in this big idea that you're putting forward. It's out in the New Republic. It's part of a larger legal project that you're spearheading. And it's really, really interesting. And it's now that we've gotten through the appetizer, here's the main course for our listeners. So I, at the top of the show, I rattled off some numbers about the profound change wrought on the federal judiciary by the Trump administration. But of course, I think our listeners will know that this is part of a long-term project from the more conservative political faction in our country to try to really focus on the judiciary and the role they play in our democracy. So you start off your recent New Republic article profiling your idea for fixing the judiciary with some practical examples of what all this means. So maybe you can just clue us into what's the problem here? Like, what does it really mean that we have such a more conservative federal judiciary? Yeah. So people usually frame this issue as one involving ideology. So judges are very conservative or judges are very liberal, right? Conservatives complain about that or have in the past. I don't necessarily frame it that way. The, the problem to me is that judges are just too powerful. And so what do I mean by that? <clears throat> so you know, we have a problem, let me just take an example. We have a problem in this country of politics being kind of suffused with private money, right? And the corruption that private money brings into our politics. And Congress over the years has tried various ways to, to, to control that. And the Supreme Court has essentially struck down pretty much everything they've tried to do as inconsistent with the First Amendment. So the Citizens United case is a great example of this. So. Congress tried to limit corporate contributions. Um, Supreme Court says five to four, can't do that, right? Can't limit cor corporate contributions in the way you have done it because you know corporations have First Amendment rights. Okay, so if you look at the First Amendment, it's, it's one of those majestic generalities in the constitution that you know, doesn't give us clear direction. The First Amendment with respect to speech says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Now that, that of course can't be literally true because um, if two people get together and, you know, they discuss killing someone, that's that's a criminal conspiracy. We are, in fact, making that speech unlawful. A more prosaic example from my past life is if you and I get together and we discuss fixing prices for some product, right. that is an antitrust violation, right? So, right. Uh, and you we, can't uh, shout fire in a crowd. You can't say, and, right. yeah, you can't go to court and say, you know, yes, um, my friend and I discussed fixing the prices of this product, but you know, we have a first amendment right to discussion. Congress will make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So you can't, I mean, you literally cannot take the first amendment literally, right? You have to, you have to interpret it. It, 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 it cannot be enforced without interpretation. And you know, what is the interpretation? The interpretation is the court kind of shaping a whole set of doctrines about what the first amendment is about. So, you know, General Motors has the, has the same freedom of speech when it comes to politics as you do. Now that, that is not written in the constitution. It is not something the framers told us. There is no history. Um, the precedent is kind of running in both directions, but the court five to four decides that. And when the court five to four decides that, we all are stuck with it. We have no ability to do anything about it. The amendment procedure in article five for amending the constitution is crazily demanding. It is the most demanding amendment procedure of any constitution that I know of. 
the Constitution hasn't really been amended in the last half century. I mean, we've got this kind of amendment that um, was put into place to limit Congress's pay raises until after the election. But that, that amendment had been around literally since, you know, the, 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 the uh, ratification of the Bill of Rights that Madison proposed that and it got uh, it got ratified, you know, hundreds of years later, because some student noticed in a college essay that there was no time limit on the ratification right. requirement for that. And we're like particular 40 amendment. years on from the ERA too, right? Like, so like amendments are they're, they're ticking time bombs of jurisdictional, uh, you know, uh, uh, jurisprudence, right? So what do we have, right? We have, we live in a constitutional democracy and th- th- those are very anodyne words. But if you think about it for a moment, those words are actually butting up against each other. We have a democracy, but our, our democratic choices are limited by our constitution. Now, you know, um, that's in moderation, a very good thing. We don't we don't want democracy kind of overrunning individual rights. We don't want policy kind of seesawing back and forth. But taken to an extreme, which I think judicial review in the United States does, it's a very bad thing. It it, it mutates into rule by judges, and this is, I think, what we have. Why why do I think we have this? Because if you look at what the Republicans have done over the last you know again twenty years, and what the Democrats are starting to rev themselves up to do. A lot of electoral competition is really competition for control of the judiciary, which is where so much of the action happens. So many of the of the choices about our political future are made. That is an incredibly unhealthy situation. And part of what I'm trying to do is to reverse that. Well, and just to build on your point, I mean, one thing that I've tackled in my own writing is the fact that I think Americans don't realize that so much policy is being made by the federal agencies. And as Justice Sotomayor said, in appellate courts, because we've really, as the legislative branch, right, three branches of government, we all remember our our, our foundational civics, or or we don't, uh, you know, as the legislative branch has become increasingly dysfunctional, it's fallen to the executive branch, the executive branch agencies to make policy. This is actually something that comes up later on in your article. I won't, I won't take us too far down that rabbit hole, but you're making a really compelling point, which is that we've sort of de facto handed a substantial policymaking role to the federal judiciary. Yeah. And that policymaking role, you know, this isn't a rabbit hole at all. It's actually front and center in some of the most important issues we face literally today, which is, you know, what do we do about the Delta variant, right? So, Back during the first COVID wave, the Center for Centers for Disease Control declared an eviction moratorium. Right now, why did they do that? Congress gave them power to to, to basically declare eviction moratoriums if they made a determination that having people evicted might contribute to the spread of an infectious disease. Right, so people get thrown out of their homes, they end up in group settings, or they end up in shelters where it's easier to spread um, COVID. So the CDC orders this this nationwide eviction moratorium. So the Realtors Association sue. And in a case called Alabama Association of Realtors versus HHS, um, the Supreme Court rules, again, 5-4, that that the eviction moratorium um, is an overextension of the CDC's power. So there's a block on the Supreme Court that seems perfectly content with second-guessing and expert agencies, public health policies. So, you know, the CDC has made mistakes, but they're still a lot better positioned to assess proper policy in a pandemic than, you know, five justices, generalist lawyers on the Supreme Court. You were walking us through this example, this very recent example of the eviction moratorium. And yes, we were talking about the fact that 
okay, so you've got this executive branch agency, the CDC, making a rule. You've got the federal judiciary weighing in on it. And you've got these two branches of government kind of butting heads over it. I'm not hearing the role of the Congress in here, which is supposed to be making right. laws, but tell us more about it. Well, Congress is involved because Congress has given the CDC the authority to make rules about evictions if they find that evictions would in fact contribute to the spread of infectious disease. So Congress set up the authority and they gave it to the CDC to implement. What the, what the conservative justices on the Supreme Court said was, you know, that's too much authority that you gave to the, to the agency. And this is part of a conservative um, uh, strategy, which has been growing for a quarter century to limit um, the Congress's ability to delegate authority to agencies. Now, what's the meaning of that? That is an attack essentially on the federal government's ability to do things. Because the truth is on matters of um, complex, for example, public health policy. Congress is not going to legislate at the speed required to keep up with changes in the public health situation during the COVID pandemic, nor does Congress even have the expertise to do that. It's, it's, it's agencies that have the expertise. So we have what we have is a new deal model of government where Congress um, delegates authority to federal agencies to make decisions quickly, to make decisions with expert input. Um, this is the model of government that the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is attacking. And Justice Kavanaugh's appointment to the court gave them five votes to attack that non-delegation doctrine. So I think in the next few years, you're going to see more and more Supreme Court decisions stripping away the ability of the federal government to actually do its work. So what we're setting up here is a basic problem that we're trying to solve. Yeah. Judges with too much power. And in many ways, tying to our earlier conversation, it represents kind of a time lag problem, a sort of a generational and an ideological clash between Democrats, liberals, younger people who are voting, who, as you say, it's a we're a constitutional democracy. It's the kind of the democracy piece of this, which is heading toward more progressive, active, nimble policies and a more conservative, older judiciary with a ton of power and exercising that power. So right. the ideas that have been put forward to resolve this conflict so far that I've at least seen in sort of the public sphere have involved court packing, right. term limits. Now you evaluate those ideas in your New Republic article. You find them both lacking. Why not go down the road of court packing or term limits? So court packing, I think, is a political response to a problem that at its root is deeper than politics. The problem is that judges have too much power. So the, the way to solve that problem is not to, you know, try to grab the federal judiciary and, you know, uh, turn it to your own ends, right? The Republicans have done that and court packing is basically an attempt by the Democrats to do the same thing on the other side. I understand why tit for tat is a tempting strategy. I just don't think that ultimately solves the problem. I think that reinforces the idea that a lot of our political battles are fought out in courts and they shouldn't be. They should be fought out democratically for the most part. So, you know, term limits I am friendlier to. I think life appointments are a mistake. I think it's one of the, the quite frequent mistakes that the framers made in our constitution. Um, other countries have term limits and term limits would be great. The only problem is term limits are very hard to do because the constitution says that these judges keep their positions, uh, you know, as, as long as they behave basically. So this is a, 
this is a difficult thing to do. I, I don't, I think it can be done, but I, I, I think it's difficult. And again, it doesn't attack the problem directly. The, the, the way to attack the problem directly, I think, is already in the constitution. And that's the part of this that, you know, when I started thinking about this was most surprising to me. So article three of the constitution, which is the part that sets up the judiciary, article one sets up the legislature, article two, the, the executive, article three, the judiciary. It contains two pieces of, of, um, of text, which are, you know, I think very important and haven't gotten quite the attention they deserve in the public debate, although legal scholars have looked at them. One is Article 3, Section 1, which gives Congress the power to ordain and establish lower federal courts. So, you know, it may be a surprise to people that the only court, the only federal court that has constitutional provenance is the Supreme Court. That's the only court that's set up by the Constitution. The other courts, the appellate courts that you mentioned, the district courts, which make, as you rightly say, a lot of very important decisions that the Supreme Court does not review. These courts exist at Congress's discretion. Congress can make them. Congress can unmake them. Congress can give them jurisdiction. Congress can withdraw jurisdiction from them. And Congress has understood that since 1789, the first Judiciary Act in 1789 gave them some jurisdiction, but withheld a whole lot of jurisdiction. So for example, there was no federal criminal jurisdiction in the early Judiciary Acts. So Congress has complete control over the jurisdiction of the lower federal courts. Now, with respect to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has some original jurisdiction that Congress can't monkey with, but that, that is a pipsqueak. That is, you know, cases involving ambassadors or cases between the United States and some other country. I mean, that's, that's a tiny little portion of jurisdiction. For, for the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction, which is, you know, 95% plus of the Supreme Court's docket, Article three, section two, clause two contains a clause which allows Congress to make exceptions to that jurisdiction. So Congress can remove jurisdiction from the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. So let me give you an example of how, how this might work, how this article three authority that Congress has to shape jurisdiction might work to curb a politicized judiciary. So let's say, going back to the campaign finance example, that you know we see our democracy being torn apart in front of our faces by you know, corporate money. And we decide that these First Amendment limitations, First Amendment limitations, which by the way, the court made up out of virtually nothing. It's not as if the First Amendment actually says this, right? If we decide these First Amendment, limit Amendment limitations are a suicide pact for democracy, we cannot live with them. Then Congress can pass a law reinstating corporate campaign contributions, and it can include in that law a provision stripping the courts of jurisdiction to review the law. What that will constitute, that the courts are cut out at this point, and what that constitutes is a statement by Congress that they have an interpretation of the Constitution that permits these limitations. They are enforcing that interpretation in law. And if that interpretation is going to be rejected, it will be rejected by voters not by judges. So voters, you, me, all of us have the ability to look at what Congress does and say, okay, I like that or I don't and to vote accordingly. And if it's unpopular, if what Congress has done is unpopular, Congress will face discipline from voters. So th this, this is, I think in the constitution, it is a way of preventing the country from being ruled by judges. It is a way, a safety valve for democracy to prevail over constitutionalism in selected cases.
Now, I love the idea, both because it's novel and it has a clickbaity quality to it, right? It's like, <laughs> here's one weird trick to fix right. our whole country. Right. But it right. also is deeply grounded in scholarship and constitutional law. This is not kind of a fly-by-night uh, idea here for how to fix what's a pretty deep problem in our country. I guess the first question is, if this power exists, has it been exercised by Congress previously to strip jurisdiction of a over a specific piece of legislation out of the federal court system? And if it has not been used, why hasn't it been used? So Congress has used its power over jurisdiction to limit court's jurisdiction, for example, to hear habeas claims or to hear immigrants' claims. It, it has done this in the past. And there, there's always a, a kind of unresolved constitutional question at the bottom, which is the, the way people frame it. What if Congress does something unconstitutional and then strips court's jurisdiction to review, right? So if you think, for example, that the, the, the campaign finance restrictions are unconstitutional and the, the Congress enforces them through a jurisdiction stripping provision, wouldn't the courts just ignore the jurisdiction stripping provision and proceed? So they've never done that, right? And in fact, um, there's a post-Civil War case, McCardle, the McCardle case, where um, uh, Congress stripped court's jurisdiction to hear you know, cases involving um, property restoration for people who um, previously supported the Confederacy. And you know the court said, and again, this is an old case, and it's a it's a different court. But the court said, look, you know they've stripped our jurisdiction. We can't we can't proceed to hear the claim um, uh, again in this case. So there's there's authority for uh, the effectiveness of jurisdiction stripping. There's no real authority against it. Um, it's in the Constitution. It's textual, right? It's it's this isn't some theory about bootstrapping. This is actual text that points very directly at the power. But let, let me make a point that I think is much broader, which is if Congress is determined to retake interpretive authority from the courts and courts resist, the courts are very likely to lose that battle, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the courts cannot pay their own rent. They, they, they are utterly dependent on the, on the Congress for their existence. So if it comes to this, if, if politicized judging gets a majority in this country aroused enough to do something about it, I, I think Congress has every tool at its disposal um, to do something effectively. Let me ask you about two potential counter arguments, devil's advocate arguments. And I think you partially address them in some of your writing. One argument is this is a, this is a sword that could cut both ways. And it's sort of a, a partisan ideological argument. So you present in your New Republic article some, some examples, some of which you've shared with us, of specific policy cases where Democrats who currently hold majorities in Congress could have an issue they want to advance. They strip jurisdiction as part of a piece of legislation. And you say, look, Republicans could do the same thing. The right. worm turns awfully fast. 75% of Congresses have featured a flip in power between who was holding the majority to who is now in the minority. So there's historical precedent for this. The Republicans could very quickly take charge. And then Mitch McConnell is advancing a piece of legislation. Let's say it's, I don't know, a piece of abortion legislation that specifically 
strips federal court jurisdiction or pick any policy issue that's sort of anathema to Democrats. What do you make of that counterargument? So I, I don't even take that to be a counterargument. It's just an observation. So th this is a tool that can be used by both sides in the political battle in this country. That's, to me, appropriate, right? The, the question always is whether if Congress strips jurisdiction in a particular instance, whether the voters will tolerate it or whether they won't. Right now, you know, again, I, I think and this is my disposition about constitutional democracy, that constitutional rights have an important role to play, but that ultimately most decisions should be made democratically, or at least more decisions than we are making democratically now. We live in a country where judicial power has pervaded every discussion, right? Every discussion, this discussion about the eviction ban is really a discussion about whether five justices on the Supreme Court, or maybe even six, are going to accept it, rather than a discussion of what's the right public health policy. Our discussion of abortion is more and more, well, has been for a long time about, you know, who's going to be appointed to the court and what are their attitudes on abortion and not about, you know, what's the right abortion policy? What are the right uh, reproductive rights policies? What's the right uh, contraception policy, right? So again, um, so much of our energy is taken up by judicial politics and that is just not constructive. I would note one thing just as a comparator. So directly north of us, Canada, essentially has this feature in its constitution. It, it, it's phrased a little differently, but the section 33 of the Canadian charter contains something called the notwithstanding clause, which basically says, look, if the Canadian Supreme Court rules that something is unconstitutional, the, the national legislature, or in fact, the provincial legislature is a part of this that I don't really love, but there you have it. The national legislature can just overrule it they can pass a law reinstating the law that's been struck down. That, that reinstating statement will last for five years. It can be renewed at the end of those five years. So what, what's going on there? That is exactly what I'm talking about, right? Canada is a decent, you know, liberal, not political, not Democrat party, Democratic party liberal, but kind of liberal rights regarding state. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a country where there's a decent government and a, a decent society, it, 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 and it runs on this model. Um, so yes, the model does in fact throw open more decisions to democratic decision-making, but to me, that's, that's a feature, not a bug. Well, speaking of features, not bugs, that really segues to the second, I don't know if it's devil's advocate. It's sort of a, it's sort of a nagging concern argument. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, it's, it's tough. It's a tough one to phrase. So what if we argue that the setup that we're currently finding ourselves in, where you have a, an increasingly geriatric Supreme Court representing right. a, I mean, it's like they're in a time warp, right? I mean, we've got people, you know, we've got people ruling over us who are from a very different generation than most of us. No insult to the elderly in our population, but the, the bulk of the population has different societal norms and expectations and sensibilities than the majority of people on our Supreme Court. There's a different ideology. They were appointed by presidents who are long gone and, by, and shaped by the politics that put those presidents in office that are long gone today. But what if that is a feature, not a bug? George Washington is said to have told Thomas Jefferson that the framers of the Constitution had created the Senate to be a cooling saucer, to cool right. down the hot passions of the House of Representatives. The idea is that it, it's supposed to be baked right into our setup that, you know, maybe we don't want to go too fast. 
maybe we we want speed bumps on the road here because as we think about it, as as we slow down, we want the pace of social change to be a little bit slower. So what do you make of that argument? Is it maybe a feature, not a bug, to have this restraining sea anchor in our democracy? Yeah, I mean, so speed bumps are in moderation a good thing, but I'd ask you and I'd ask your listeners to think, what would it be like to drive if the road was nothing but speed bumps, right? It would be an incredibly arduous, unpleasant experience. And I would say that the way our constitutional democracy has developed is really increasingly nothing but speed bumps. So, you know, you mentioned the Senate. The Senate is an abominable institution. It, it was it was misbegotten at its birth, and it's gotten much, much worse. So, you know, we we have this kind of anti-majoritarian break in the Constitution. Again, in moderation, that's a very good thing. Other countries do it too, but they don't overdo it like we've done. What do I mean by that? So the Senate is crazily unrepresentative, right? The 700,000 or so people in Wyoming have the same two senators as what, the 40 million people in California? You know, there's 8.6 million people in New York City. That's, That's more than all but 10 or 11 states, right? New York City alone. So New York City has no senators of its own. It's part of New York State, which has the same two as Rhode Island or Delaware. This is a crazy system, right? This gives to a small minority of the country the ability to block anything and everything. And because of our political polarization, that's what we've gotten. The Senate has a hard time doing business in its regular way. You know, this infrastructure bill that's passing through, they're having a hard time, a really hard time spending money on stuff like roads and bridges that literally everybody uses, right? That spending money on roads and bridges to fix potholes and make sure that bridges don't fall into rivers should be unbelievably popular. They should clap this through by acclamation. They're, you know, with these great exertions, they're barely able to do that business. So I don't think the Senate, if George Washington were quoting George Washington to point at the Senate, I think he proved to be kind of over-optimistic about the Senate. Now, in addition to the Senate, you know, you have the courts, and in particular, the Supreme Court, striking down a startling percentage of the stuff that actually gets through that gauntlet, right? So, you know, we we legislate to give the CDC authority to enact eviction bans if we need to do that to halt the spread of disease. And a bunch of untrained people, lawyers and rubs on the Supreme Court, second-guess that. Or, you know, we, we attempt in the Voting Rights Act to create the conditions under which we get fair voting rules in states with a long history of discriminating on the basis of race in voting. And the Supreme Court eviscerates that. Why? Not because the Constitution forbids it, but because they gin up some principle that all the states have to be treated equally. I mean, you know, where does that principle come from? We fought a civil war over this, and one side of the civil war prevailed, right? And the other side was defeated. And after that, um, you know, we had a series of measures. The Voting Rights Act is one of them to try to equalize the voting rules in those former Confederate states, those states with a long history of racial discrimination. So the court kind of gins up a principle out of nowhere, 5-4, again, completely politically driven, invalidates the section of the Voting, right Act, voting Rights Act that um, allows preclearance by the federal government or mandates preclearance by the federal government of changes in voting rules in those covered jurisdictions. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts says, you know, we've moved on from this racial animus. We don't need this anymore. Well, it turns out the minute the Supreme Court takes the binders off, these same places rush to reenact voting restrictions that 
have a disparate impact on the basis of race. So again, speed bumps, speed bumps in our democracy, nothing but speed bumps. And I think, you know, again, it's a matter of judgment. Have we, have we done it or have we overdone it? I, I think, you know, the, the evidence is accumulating that we've overdone it. It's a really compelling argument you make because look, I do have a little bit of a, of a nagging worry here. We just went through this, this meltdown, this, and, yeah. and, and people don't appreciate, I think, just how close we came to the edge in, it, when, when we were seeing this meltdown. I mean, we had an insurrection yeah. under the Capitol. We nearly lost the whole thing. And the, the, the end, kind of like the, the, the last stopgap was always going to be the Supreme Court. That's what it was when we had what passed for an election meltdown in 2000 in Bush v. Gore. Mm-hmm. So I, I worry a little bit about mucking around with that final fail-safe net in our democratic setup that we, we, we follow Supreme Court rulings and that is kind of the final word. But, but, but yeah. you are making a very strong point that we have sort of a tautological argument going here, which is we have an inherently stacked, unfair electoral system, right? That's, that's sort of a closed loop that is elevating kind of one segment of the country, both geographically and ideologically. And then democratically, we can't pass things that the majority of the country wants. And then if we manage to do so, another unelected, undemocratic segment of our constitutional democracy shuts them down. So at the end yeah. of the day, I, I, to me, I think that portion of the argument wins out. It sounds like obviously that's where you land. Yeah, this, this idea that the Supreme Court's gonna protect us from insurrection version 2.0 is I think um, open to question. So, so the problem with the Trump insurrection was um, it was visibly, undeniably lawless, okay? The next insurrection is gonna be backed by law. So the states are making changes to their voting procedures. They're putting state legislatures in the position of overturning you know, election results. The Supreme Court, I would predict, will be completely satisfied with a facade of law as long as the, the second insurrectionists erect that facade of law before they attempt a coup. Right. And so the Supreme Court could very easily become an instrument of of sort of ratifying a, right. a, an insurrection, a, a an assault on democracy as much as being a stopgap against it. That's well, what I worry about. I it's 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 a major worry. Well, look, you're presenting. I mean, it's I guess it's not a novel argument since it's been around for, you know, almost 250 years in a way. Um, yeah. It's re- it's hiding in plain sight. But it, it really is interesting. It's not talked about enough. And it's it's a really helpful, again, kind of fresh perspective. So Christopher Sprigman, thank you so much for bringing us this idea. Do you, I, I guess, lightning round question, from what you know of the Senate, is anyone going to take you up on this? Uh, so the, the thing is, the Senate doesn't have to take me up on it so much as, you know, there has to come a moment where the Congress legislates some right and they cut the courts out of it. They say, you can't review this. Maybe that's a moment. Um, Again, nothing happens quickly in this country, paralyzed by our own constitution. Well, absolutely fascinating idea, fascinating discussion. And I encourage our listeners, talk back to us on Facebook. Let us know what you think. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics.